Welcome back to Supply Chain Insider, a podcast series from Material Handling and Logistics. I'm your host, Dave Blanchard, the editor-in-chief of MHNL. Since our previous episode, my latest book has been published, namely Supply Chain Management Best Practices, third edition by John Wiley and Sons. It's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever else you might buy books. So that's been exciting. One thing that my new book, our regular coverage on the MHLnews.com website, and our guest on today's podcast, Vanessa Miller from Foley and Lardner, all share in common, is a focus on the critical role that supply chains play in the global economy and what can happen when these supply chains aren't properly managed. The severity of shortages in a number of key sectors, from semiconductors to rare earth minerals to electric vehicle batteries to pharmaceuticals, led the Biden administration to launch a task force to address these supply chain disruptions and what can be done to overcome them. So that's what we'll be talking about today. And with that, let's get started. Today, we're joined by Vanessa Miller. Vanessa is a litigation partner with Foley and Lardner, chair of the Detroit office's litigation department and a lead of Foley's Supply Chain Solutions Initiative. So welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. And please share a little bit about your background leading Foley Supply Chain Solutions Initiative. Thank you, Dave. Well, I am a litigation attorney based in the Detroit area. By virtue of being in Detroit, I handle a number of automotive and manufacturing supply chain disputes, representing automakers and other manufacturers in breach of contract, breach of warranty cases, and other types of litigation. Um, having seen these matters play out over the last 16 years of my career, uh, have, I've developed quite a niche area in supply chain counseling and helping companies mitigate risk, looking at their supply chains, seeing lessons learned and how those can be implemented in the company's strategies. Okay, that's an interesting uh, job description, supply chain counselor, <laughs> because many companies seem, seems like these days, everybody needs some kind of a supply chain counseling. But in, in, in the legal arena that you, that you work in, uh, what are some examples of what, a, what would be a, a typical supply chain issue that someone would need counseling for? Sure. I can give you a pretty current example uh, and that I'm spending a lot of time on lately, which is the microchip and semiconductor shortages. Um, we, we saw this play out because at the end of 2020 or in early 2020, when the pandemic was underway, vehicle manufacturers slashed their volumes dramatically. Uh, there was an anticipation that there was not going to be the need to keep lines running. There was the shutdown in automotive. And then tier one suppliers, of course, in turn decreased their orders and so on down the, down the supply chain that resulted in chip manufacturers, um, the major chip manufacturer being TSMC, um, re resourcing with other customers and placing their capacity with other industries besides automotive. Then we saw uh, more consumers buying vehicles than anyone anticipated. And that resulted in the tier ones needing to go back and increase their orders uh, because the vehicle manufacturers were increasing their volume estimates. Unfortunately, the chip supply had already been allocated elsewhere. 
So for orders placed in November of last year, um, those, those parts aren't even anticipated to be delivered until September of this year. Uh, now we're seeing car companies, lines shutting down uh, all the way from early uh, Q1 2021 through the present. We're st still hearing about more line downs occurring. And couple that with the unprecedented Texas storms, which impacted domestic chip production, uh, the Suez Canal blockage, which caused major transportation issues across all of automotive, and then other force majeure events that occurred. And we're really beginning to see the peak of the semiconductor shortage right now. So um, what happened is then automakers um, did what I call the, the toilet paper phenomenon. <laughs> and instead of um, working really collaboratively with their supply base, they increased their demand and anticipated they need 250% in some cases of their actual volume estimates for components, um, thinking that that would cause their supply base to allocate volumes to them that would result in 100% of their needs versus the 250% that they forecasted. But instead, it just created more confusion across the industry. Yeah, that's the classic supply chain uh, issue that there is uh, you, your forecasts are all wrong uh, when, when reality hits and then you over forecast. Uh, so your forecasts are still wrong and then things just get worse and worse. <laughs> we, I mean, as you said, I, you know, toilet paper is uh, it's a good way to describe it because certainly a lot of stuff is hitting the fan there. In um, not just automotive, but all of manufacturing. So uh, you set the stage very well. What then does, does your practice do to help companies strategize beyond this horrible issue that they've created? Yes. So what we're hearing from most manufacturers is uh, the just-in-time lean manufacturing model. It, it's here to stay. Um, there's not going to be this, this massive change because you know, price is the number one priority across all supply chains. Um, that that's going to drive your profits, and um, there's not going to be an ability in most circumstances to really create the necessary safety stock uh, or or bank of parts that you would need to have on hand at all times. But there are some protections that companies are looking to build in. For example, um, moving away from single sourcing, looking at dual sourcing options. Yes, there's going to be a cost associated with that, but when some unprecedented, unforeseeable event occurs, you have that backup supplier already in the pipeline, uh, approved and ready to ready to increase volumes as needed. Um, looking at having uh, your manufacturing supply base diversified, such that you don't have all of your parts coming from one country. Um, which can cause major issues. And having some ability to access parts domestically, having some storage, um, it's difficult to know how much you would need because it would depend on the circumstance, but having some ability to warehouse and inventory certain components that can sit on the shelf that might not be specially manufactured um, and, and having those accessible to you. As you know, the, the Biden administration has been looking at, at a lot of the what you've been talking about, the vulnerabilities in, in some of the critical U.S. supply chains. Um, you already talked about semiconductor chips, uh, which we've seen throughout numerous industries. Also, things like batteries for electric cars and vehicles, 
rare earth minerals, pharmaceuticals. Can we attribute all of these shortages to either bad forecasting or the pandemic? Or what, what's caused all these shortages, do you think? I think it's it's broader than that. I think probably globalization is something. Uh, companies are becoming more and more global. You're not just staying in the same state or the same country when you're sourcing your components in your supply chain, as well as the, this goal of electrification, the electrification of everything from automobiles to, I think we're talking about maybe even having battery run airplanes in, in the next few decades. Right. Um, that has really driven that those initiatives have really driven a massive change such that supply chains are never going to be the same. Um, and the problem is that one small shortage or issue can shut down an entire industry. For example, with batteries, we know that there's this looming shortage of lithium, cobalt, and nickel. These are things that traditionally have come from only mined in a few places. Um, and those places aren't known for their um, labor and, and human rights. And uh, now we're, we're needing to look at alternative sources, but mines take years of investment and time to obtain the materials and the minerals that we're looking for. So it's going to be both both short-term planning and strategy to mitigate against having shortages that make electrification impossible, electrification goals very difficult to achieve. Um, Short-term goals like looking at domestic mines and investing in domestic mining efforts in the U.S., longer-term goals, investing in research and development uh, to look at other options for making batteries that won't require some of the rare minerals. So technologically, the the material handling and logistics industries, which a lot of my readers are are deeply involved in, um, they really have been interested in lithium batteries in in particular, um, as as well as other electronic vehicles for things like uh, forklifts and, and other vehicles that they use in their warehouses. So we talked a little bit earlier before this podcast about the the national blueprint for lithium batteries. Do you see this as an an initiative that's likely to to work? I I just get the sense that that politicians in particular and and administrations going down through decades, uh, they, they launch initiatives, but do we expect to see any real world results from, from these sorts of national, you know, the national blueprint for lithium batteries? Will that play out, do we think? I think there's already been a significant investment in it. Um, what's going to come of that investment? Again, the, the short-term prospects are that, that we really need to start seeing changes immediately in order to achieve the goals that we've already set. Um, so, so that's going to be interesting to watch it play out. Uh, it's something that definitely does require attention. And I think that beyond the US, other countries are doing the same thing and making the same sorts of investments because these are, these are issues that many countries are going to have to grapple with. In your perspective, since your, your clients are coming to you for your perspective, as well as your, your advice and your, your, your legal counseling, what should companies do if, if they're interested in, in pursuing electrification of their facilities or their vehicles uh, and they're you know, encountering these critical shortages that you talked about already? 
are you seeing the strategies that you talked about a little bit earlier? Are, are those easy to, to lay out? I mean, how, when you, when you're working with a client, where do they start? I mean, what, what, what's your, your launching point? Like company says, I don't, I can't get any chips. I can't get the batteries I need. What happens next? Typically uh, we start with issues they've encountered in the past to see where they can improve. Uh, looking at the supply chain and seeing where it was not as resilient as it should have been. And then figuring out how long-term changes can be made, investments can be made to either diversify your supply base, look at building in some, some safety nets across the supply base. Um, I always say everything goes back to the contracts that you have with your customers and your own suppliers, because at the end of the day, um, that's going to be what's going to drive who is responsible for certain issues in the supply chain, who is bearing the risk of certain costs or issues should they occur. And everything can be uh, accomplished by contract and just have to make sure that you're monitoring that, properly negotiating those contracts, and then enforcing the contracts when issues do occur. Um, now, many companies have been doing things the, the same way for a very long time. Uh, others have have already been investing in their supply chains. They have chief, chief supply chain officers. Right. They have been looking long-term at options such as nearshoring or reshoring certain uh, manufacturing or supply. And I think that it's just a matter of continuing to look at your long-term strategies and looking at your supply chain as one of the best assets that your company has if it is flexible and resilient. In terms of your client base, because uh, I know you're you're deeply involved with the automotive industry as well as probably some other industries, how deep do you go? Do you do you f- focus on the the OEMs or on the tier ones, the tier two suppliers, or do you take it as it comes in terms of who comes to you? So most firms kind of have to pick whether you're going to represent the OEMs or the supply base, and and. Uh, we represent suppliers, okay. um, tier ones and tier twos. More recently, we have become involved in representing a number of these, these newer um, electric vehicle startups. Mm-hmm. And um, that it's, it's a little different than the traditional OEM because oftentimes they have less leverage than even a tier one would have or a tier two. Um, so I think as technology becomes more ingrained in vehicles and electrification efforts ramp up, the power dynamic that is common of the big three and the supply base is going to change significantly. What's your view on President Biden's supply chain task force? What what do you th- what do you think from from your perspective, working with the automotive suppliers uh, in particular? Do you see that this task force will evolve into a, a working living, not just a document, but an actual plan that, that companies will, will rally around? I think it's focused on the right key issues, right? Looking at critical medicines and the availability of those medicines, looking at batteries, um, sustainable domestic and international production of certain critical minerals. Um, Of course, many industries are watching to see what's what the government is going to do and how they're going to help. But of course, um, investing in it and looking at these things and identifying important areas is step one. I think we're all waiting to see. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Fair enough. Uh, uh, every uh, presidential administration seems to have its own unique supply chain challenges. And, uh, you know, to, to President Biden's credit, he, he jumped into this supply chain task force initiative, uh, you know, almost from the from the day he got into office. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it evolves, because we do see um, as you were talking earlier, and and maybe we can talk about it just for just for a second here, things like development of of mines, you know, to as a as a U.S. strategy to to counteract the critical shortages of of rare materials. As you said earlier, these these mines can take decades to get up and running to full capacity. Uh, and as we also all know, all know all too well that political winds change uh, very frequently. Do you see that as a strategy that has legs that that administration after administration, no matter what, you know, which political party is in power, they will all look at that and say, yeah, we definitely want to you know, tackle expansion of rare materials, and rare minerals in the U.S. Um, as a strategy going forward. Uh, I'm not sure because the issue that we're always going to have with mining domestically is the cost. Um, we, we do have strong labor rights and human rights here, and it's going to be more expensive to mine in the U.S. than it is in other countries. Um, and will that make us competitive with these other countries long term? Um, so you always have the, the tug of war between having uh, a resource available in the U.S. versus sourcing it offshore more economically. Um, that said, when, when it comes to minerals, we're talking about a finite material that, um, that really the entire globe is going to need to be focused on. So I think that, that you have the common principles of supply and demand. And as long as there's demand for it, uh, there should be an investment made in being able to source it. You had mentioned earlier uh, that the auto industry had forecast that demand for their products for, for new cars and, and the components that go into those cars would drop dramatically throughout the, the pandemic. And what we saw was not the case at all, that the demand actually increased uh, almost unexpectedly. What what do you think that, that where did that demand come from? What caused cars to remain even more popular? It was with electric cars or is it all cars across the board or trucks or any idea? All cars, okay. um, maybe stimulus checks. <laughs> Good <laughs> I, point. I think um, people had had money to spend and uh, people were more focused on looking, you know, working from home, uh, looking around their houses and wanting to invest in new furniture and, and upgrades. And you've heard about furniture manufacturers having major issues. Yes. Gardening supplies. Um, I think there were many industries that were bicycles, uh, many industries that were caught off guard by this and uh, were pleasantly surprised in the uptick in demand, but couldn't meet it in the short term. Okay, so the chances are we've seen the last of the stimulus checks, you know, knock on wood that the pandemic is almost done. Um, do you see the demand staying steady or will it drop off a little bit with, with people having, you know, reached their peak with how much they want to spend? I think it eventually has to level off. You're yeah. only going to need so many couches, so many cars. Right. Um, so it, it eventually has to catch up and um, it will be again incumbent upon various industries to predict when that will occur 
when their supply chain is going to catch up and advance plan for it so that then you're not caught with a surplus of available material. Got it. Uh, Let's just shift gears for a second. USDA plans to invest as much as $4 billion to improve and strengthen uh, food supply chains, not just the food products themselves, but the production of it, the processing, distribution. What do you think the aims of this investment are and where do you think that money will be spent? Who, who, who's likely to be the recipient of, of that $4 billion? Yeah, good question. So I think um, one interesting statistic that I just read was that the, the U.S. spends more on healthcare and and less on food than any other high-income nation. Um, and yet we have all these terrible um, diet-related illnesses and lo- a lower life expectancy than these other nations. Right. So I think that the government's intent is to, to change that statistic. Um, and meanwhile, the, the food distribution and the food supply chain is, is probably one of the more antiquated ones when compared to other industries. Um, really centralized production, processing, and distribution centers that it's just going to need to to undergo a massive uh, makeover, really. And they're going to need to make serious changes looking at um, where product's coming from, how product is stored, um, and ensuring that there's fresh food available locally. So when you're working with your clients and they, they come to you with their myriad different challenges of, of supply chains. Where do you go for uh, supply chain expertise? Obviously, you're you're somewhat of an expert yourself in having uh, litigated so many supply chain issues and in, in different cases of of that nature. But where else do you go? Do you have like a you know a, a, an open phone line to some supply chain expertise in Washington or, or in Detroit or otherwise? We certainly do have. Um, a number of attorneys that work in our DC office that hear real time about issues and initiatives. Um, in addition, we have excellent relationships with industry groups, such as the National Association of Manufacturers, mm-hmm. um, OESA, and automotive suppliers, and try and stay on top of issues, try and help um, forecast what we should be thinking about now that could become an issue down the road, and, and really making sure that we have our pulse on what companies are are looking to do in the future. All right. That, number of industries. Thank you. Um, you. You kind of set me up with a good final question for you, uh, which is probably what's going to be on the top of our listeners' minds is what should they be looking for? What, what, do, what can they expect the rest of 2021 and into the following years uh, in terms of these supply chain issues we've been talking about? So I think what we've all learned from this is, is to start to expect the unexpected. Um, this The pandemic hopefully is ending, right? But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be future force majeure, future acts of God, a future uh, global virus or issue that's going to impact supply chains. And it's just a matter of improving resiliency in the supply chain and having a strategy in place. I think many companies were caught off guard 20, in 2020 because they didn't have a strategy in place. Um, so now companies have that, but you can't predict what the next issue is going to be. And it, it's a matter of 
um, ensuring that you've mitigated the risk as much as possible. So if nothing else positive came from the pandemic, at least uh, increased awareness of contingency planning and risk management forecasting and all those other things that we've talked about in supply chain circles for years, but many companies apparently thought that was a good thing to do next week, but not today. Um, sounds like they're going to start taking it, or if they're not taking it seriously now, they definitely need to be in the future. I think so. I, I've been talking about force majeure clauses as one of the key clauses in a contract for years. And I think people would laugh at me when I used to say <laughs> that, but now everyone knows about, everyone turns their force majeure clause in their contracts. That's right. That, that's one, one of those words that uh, we never even heard very much outside of legal circles. And now everybody's, you know, it's on the tips of their lips. With that, I'm going to wrap up this, this podcast interview with Vanessa Miller. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. It thank was, you for uh, having me. Oh, absolutely. Your, your wealth of knowledge is, uh, is, is runs very deep. And it, it was also fascinating because, um, you know, we typically are talking to a lot of the technology companies, but uh, they all seem to have singular and specific issues. And uh, it, it's good to hear your perspective that everybody is kind of in the same boat in terms of um, this, these critical shortages that are just kind of hampering our ability to, to move forward with the, with, with the demand. Uh, but it did, it did sound like there may be maybe a um, uh, light at the end of the tunnel. So we'll, we'll hope to see that that's the case. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Vanessa. And that's going to wrap up this episode of Supply Chain Insider. Thank you for spending some time with us today. And please join us again soon. And to learn more about the current state of the supply chain, visit the Material Handling and Logistics website, mhlnews.com. For Supply Chain Insider, I'm Dave Blanchard. See you next time.